You are listening to the Theologizing at Remedy podcast, a podcast of Remedy Church in Rock Hill, South Carolina. The design of the podcast is to help the people at Remedy Church connect theology with community, mission, and care. Welcome to another episode of Theologizing at Remedy. Yes, sir. Uh, We are your hosts. Uh, I am Chris, pastor here at Remedy Church, and he is... John Chambers, lead pastor, Remedy Church, and man, what what a uh, what an obstacle to finally get this thing going. Yeah, we spent maybe an hour <laughs> <laughs> trying to set this thing up on a, this computer every time. It, it started off hour. by Fud turning on the computer and clicking the update button <laughs> like a like a fly flies into a light. <laughs> so forty five minutes later, after the update, we finally can. Go back to going to find the MIDI. Oh, it takes every, every time we have to set up the microphones because we're both imbeciles when it comes to computers. Well, I don't know. I mean, well, we'll I go am. that far. I'm definitely I don't know if I go that far. You're not. I am. Thank you, Google. <laughs> so uh, today we're going to talk about um, one of actually, uh, uh, we call them Remedy Church Distinctives. Um, in our membership covenant, we mention a couple of things that, like, the elders teach from the position of uh, uh, one of those things being Reformed theology, which we did a episode recently on the five points of Calvinism, TULIP. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now another one is the roles of men and women um, within, you know, following Jesus in the church, in the home. Uh, so we're going to talk about that today. As another just example of a Remedy Church distinctive, but again, when we say Remedy Church distinctive, we don't mean it's like oh unique to Remedy Church. Right. We believe wholeheartedly this is biblical, correct? The, the biblical view, um, and correct. so we're going to talk about that. So I want to start us off. We're going to talk about we're going to define some terms. The two terms that we're going to talk about is egalitarianism and complementarianism. Remedy is complementarian in its mm-hmm. teaching. And so let me throw out a definition for egalitarianism. You can throw out some definitions, and then we'll move on to complementarianism as well. Uh, this is from an article uh, by Tim Challies. Uh He says, Egalitarianism is the theological view that not only are all people equal before God in their personhood, but there are no gender-based limitations of what functions or roles each can fulfill in the home the church in society. So, in essence, he's saying all people are equal in uh, status and worth before God, but egalitarians take another step and say they are also equal and not limited in roles. They they are interchangeable in any role you can come up with inside the church, society, or the home. Um, right. And the distinction for complementarianism would be, of course, equal dignity and value and worth, but distinct in their roles. Right. Um, so one more uh, thing that we'll give in regard to trying to define egalitarianism further besides what we've said, one of the key verses they use for that is Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's ne- no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Um, I'm reading from a, uh, a book called 40 Questions About Elders and Deacons by Benjamin Merkel and in Question number 18, 
the, the question is, this chapter 18, is what are the reasons affirming that women can be elders? Now, we don't affirm that, but here's the arguments laid forth from, Gal- from Galatians 3.28. One of the strongest and perhaps the most repeated arguments in favor of allowing women to be elders is from Galatians 3.28, which we just read. Um, this verse affirms the equality of males and females in the sight of God. Consequently, because God does not view us any differently, it would be wrong for us to still make distinctions based on gender. According to this verse, all gender distinctions are of the old order. In Christ, however, God's original intent of having male and female ruling as equals is now restored. That's the view of egalitarianism. That is not the view of remedy, um, because we don't think that Galatians 3.28 is actually speaking about roles at all. It's just speaking about salvation. So. Position in Christ, your identity right. in Jesus. In context, in Galatians 3.28, there's no Jew nor Greek. All of those can be saved. There's neither slave nor free. All of those can be saved. There's no just male or female. All of those can be saved. He, they're not speaking of the church or the family's gender slash roles at all. It's just saying all these people can be saved, and it's right. that simple. And grabbing that and making it do more than what it's doing is where you find yourself into egalitarianism. So let's throw out a couple definitions and points for complementarianism. Uh, same, same guy, Tim Challies, is defining complementarianism. He says this, uh, complementarianism holds the theological view that although men and women are created equal in their being and personhood, so that's where egalitarians and complementarians agree, they are created to complement each other via different roles in life and in the church. And so though they are equal in status, they are different in role. And the roles actually aren't just different, but they are designed specifically to complement each other, hence the name complementarianism um yeah yeah i uh i don't have a definition to add i think that's good yeah it's a pretty good one um yeah just kind of on the off the top just to biologically we see this same idea right Mm -hmm. uh male and female they complement each other (laughs) biologically when we talk about um marriage (laughs) we talk about sex we talk about bearing children Right, each one there are different roles, Uh, so we kind of see that just in created order. It does not mean that one's better than the other. Exactly, right. It just means they're different. That's all a complementarianism is making is they're not creating a hierarchy as much as they're just saying different. So we're going to dive into a little bit later specifically what we think the Bible teaches in regards to complementarianism as it's applied to the church, as it's applied to the family. Uh, I wanted to kind of just paint a the narrative of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption. Just take those three kind of points and try to show how, from a complementarian point of view, you're going to look at creation, fall, redemption slightly different than an egalitarian would. Right. And so looking at creation, a complementarian looks at creation and they see God made mankind on day six. But he made them male and female. So he, he brought a distinction within man, male and female. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, but both are in his image. So they have equal dignity, quality, all the status, all the things that we talk about. Mm-hmm. But they're different, right? Uh, we look at Genesis 2 in the creation account, right? He created 
uh, female out of Adam as a helper for Adam to complement Adam, mm-hmm. right, and vice versa. Uh, and so when egalitarians look at the created order, they wouldn't necessarily bring emphasis to the distinction in roles or the distinction between male and female. They would just say God created mankind, male and female, and they're absolutely equal and same in every way, mm-hmm. shape, or form. Um, now, when we get to the fall, uh, it, you know, let me read a quote. This is from uh, this is actually from George Knight uh, in an article called uh, "How Should Biblical Manhood and Womanhood Work Out in Practice?" Uh, he writes this about Genesis three sixteen. This is a, a curse given to the woman, right? The hardship in childbearing. And then specifically in Genesis 3, it says this, um, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, what George writes about this, uh, it's pretty interesting. He says, We see from Genesis 3.16, in which God speaks of sin's effect on the relationship of men and women. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. In these words, God is indicating that as a result of sin, Rather than exercising a caring headship and leadership, men will seek to rule in an autocratic, unloving way. And he is, he being God, is indicating with reference to women that rather than being submissive helpers, they will desire to have mastery over their husbands. And so essentially what George is saying is a complementarian reads Genesis 3, the fall, and they actually see, well, there you go. The roles are now pitted against each other. Men are going to try to rule with an iron fist mm-hmm. instead of ruling in the way that they're called to, mm-hmm. to lead, to be the head, to, to love, right? We'll see mm-hmm. that later. And women are going to essentially have desires contrary to the husbands to, to master over them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we would read the fall that way. But an egalitarian would read the fall and they would actually say, see, that's the creation of hierarchy. Mm-hmm. When they fell, Adam now wants to rule over his wife. And there's a creation. Instead of being equal, he wants to put himself above. Uh, But again, that doesn't support the text. And then finally, just this last part, when Jesus redeems all things, uh, a complementarian says he restores, right? He restores us back kind of to that same created order in in a way. He restores in the church complementarianism, that men are to be the head of their families and women are to submit to their husbands. Men are to love their wives and uh, women are to submit to their husbands. Uh, and that that just gets restored, whereas egalitarians would quote Galatians 3, like you just talked about, mm-hmm. and say, no, 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 <clears throat> genders, there's no difference anymore in the church. They're equal in every way in roles. They're interchangeable in roles. So what you believe about this is actually rather important because it kind of serves as a lens by which you read the entire story of the Bible mm-hmm. is kind of my point with that. Um, any comments on that? No, I think that's good. Yeah. I think that's uh I think that's straightforward. It helps understand the larger picture of the narrative. Yeah, the only other uh I I was thinking about what you were talking about in uh the curses and uh what you would have to read into the text is that there wasn't some kind of um distinctions in roles in Genesis chapter 2. Right. You would have to say there's no distinction in roles in Genesis chapter 2 that they're all created at the fall. Uh, but that's just not true. When you read Genesis chapter 2, um, man's told 
alone, chapter 215, he put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Mm-hmm. And then not until 218, he sees that man shouldn't be alone, and I'm going to uh, make a helper fit for him. Uh, and so now she's going to come with a different role and help him do that, but not the exact same thing. She's a helper that's fit for him. And the helper specifically um, is because he's going to have all these animals parade in front of Adam, and he's going to see all of these people, not people, all these animals, and he's going to notice something, that they're all, you know, there's someone else with them. Oh, right. there's a, there's a horse, alone. and there's another horse. There's mm-hmm. two horses. Oh, there's a alligator and another alligator. There's two of them. But there's only one of me, and there's not another one of me. And he knows... Uh, that there's something different, right? And so whenever that happens, uh, that's when he, the great sleep comes and he's given Eve. And now it says, uh, so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up with a place of flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken um, from the male, from the man he made into a woman. And he brought her into the man. And he said, this at last, Adam said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Um, she shall call be woman because she was taken out of man. And now, therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Um, and so there's, we're told here that she's supposed to be the helper. And specifically, when we know from Genesis 1, uh, chapter 21, chapter 21, verse 28, that God blessed them and said to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue and have dominion. Um, that one of the one of the not the but one of the primary ways that she's going to help is by filling the earth and subduing it. Like all these animals are going to do that. He paraded all the animals in front mm-hmm. of them. They're clearly going to procreate, and therefore he is as well. And the way that he's going to do that, he cannot do that by himself. He has to do it with a woman. A man has to have a woman, and Adam has to have Eve in order to do that. Um, and we have to, there's no way that you can say, oh, they're the same and they can do that. Right. They have to be different and distinct in order to do that. A male, mm-hmm. Adam, has to have a female, Eve, in order to fill the earth and subdue it. Right. And so from the get-go, there's clearly distinction mm-hmm. in their roles. Yep. Um, Adam is distinct from Eve in that he cannot bear children. She has to be the one that does it. She's the helper fit to come and do it. And so uh, distinction is clear before Genesis 3. Right. Um, it's not even, you know, you don't have to be a Christian. You just have to understand biology and know how to read a narrative to say, oh, yeah, they're, they're definitely different. Right. If they're going to be able to have children, they're different. And so yeah, and the the sad thing about I guess I guess a couple notes on that, just like people scoff kind of like when you you read that you know oh it sounds so Stone Age it's archaic and helper right they scoff at the word helper but we got to remember I mean the word helper comforter um, is used all throughout Scripture of God Himself as well mm-hmm. and it's not like saying one role is more important than the other it's saying both roles are necessary in order to bring about God's will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that they're different, mm-hmm. and they're necessarily different. Uh, and kind of another thing, egalitarianism can can take that term and and import 
far more meaning than the text does. Right, right. And then kind Ezer, of yeah. Ezer in the Hebrew. Yeah. It's, it's not at all what the uh, egalitarian view holds it out to be. And, like, another kind of thing, too, is just to keep in mind that, like, when the Lord set up marriage, he had something in mind before it. Mm -hmm. Uh, He didn't just set up marriage for the sake of marriage. Mm -hmm. It's all pointing towards Jesus and his church. Right. And so subduing the earth and and filling it is already alluding to and looking forward to the day when Jesus, loving his church, dies for her and creates her out of his own side, right? And then the church submits to him and then— they subdue and they they multiply across the earth. Well, right? we'll talk about this later on. Right. It's in the outline, but if if marriage wasn't something God just made up spur of the moment there in Genesis two, but something that's supposed to help us understand Revelation, right, right, where Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride, that means that all husbands, the best thing they can do to really be the kind of husband that God wants them to be is to look to Christ and see how he um, is the bridegroom and every bride should look at the church and see what are her, take her, take their cues from the church and see how she um, is distinct from Christ. Mm-hmm. And what, what does she do? She submits unto Christ. What does Christ do? He leads the church. And so the husband and wife look to Christ in the church to take their cues on how they are supposed to have their distinct role within their marriage. Right. Yeah. So we, we're, we're going to look at this now um, through the lens of the church, complementarianism as applied to the church and some of the roles within the church. And then we're going to look at this complementarianism applied to the home or the family and some of the roles there. And uh, just as an FYI, we might in the future do another like part on complementarianism where we get a little bit more particular with some of the ins and outs. There's a, there's a whole scale now, right? Cause mm-hmm. everything has to have scales, right? Uh, there's a complementarianism scale, but for this purposes, we're just trying to outline kind of the bare bones right. of what it is, what most complementarianisms would agree with hundred percent. Right. What Chris is saying is there's two views, egalitarianism and complementarianism. But now Within complementarianism, there's a broad or narrow or right. a – what's the other – Broad and narrow, the kind of the – or uh, – There's another one. I can't remember. <laughs> thick so, and thin. Yeah, uh, there, like There's that. all different kinds. Um, so within complementarianism, there's kind of two views now, but we may come back to that another time. Right. So let's look at the church first. Uh, what within the church – um, essentially what we're asking is how does complementarianism when applied to the church, are there any difference in roles within the church that only men can do? Sure. Um, or women, right? Uh, so that's what we're talking about now. Right. Well, uh, within the church, um, in the text and in, in, in the pastoral epistles, the best place to look is in the New Testament in the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are First and Second Timothy and Titus. These guys, Timothy and Titus, are pastors, where Paul is writing to these guys who are pastors and trying to give them some good understanding of ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. And so if if you you can look other places, but if you're wanting to know where's the best place for me to look, well the pastoral epistles are the best place because that's where Paul gives direct teaching on understanding uh, a pa- a pastor to understand what the church is supposed to look like. 
So First and Second Timothy and Titus are, are the best places. Right. Um, and so in First Timothy chapter three and in Titus chapter one, Paul outlines specifically um, what are the qualifications for the pa- for the office of elder, elder, pastor, overseer, etc. So there's really only, uh, according to First Timothy chapter three, two offices in the church: elders and deacons. Um, any other dis- any other things that churches have, um, they're not necessarily bad. They're not necessarily unbiblical. But in order for you to be a church, you need to have elders and deacons. So if you have a kids director or a worship leader or a youth minister, you know churches have those, and that's fine. They're, they're not. It's not unbiblical to have them per se. Uh, it's just you know churches should have elders and deacons. Right. If you have those things, they're fine. You know you, you have kids, you have youth, you have you know. Uh, music and you want to hire someone to do that or enlist someone to do that, fine. Um, but you should have elders and deacons. And so when you look at the distinctions or the qualifications for elders and deacons in First Timothy chapter 3 in verses 1 through 7 are the qualifications for elder. In verses 8 through uh, 13, you have the qualifications for deacons. There is one key distinction mainly between those two qualifications. When you look at the office of elder, um, it says right there at the end of verse 2, able to teach. And in verses 8 through 13, when it talks about deacons, it doesn't make that distinction. And so if there is a key difference in qualifications between elders and deacons, you have able to teach. Therefore, and that's obvious because the pastor elders, they are largely in charge of the, not largely, they are in charge of the ministry of the word. And this is something that they'll do week in, week out on Sunday mornings. Mm -hmm. They'll minister the word. And so elders should be able to teach the word. Um, Deacons, deacon just means servant. And so servants um, largely are not going to do that in any capacity. They're going to serve. And so their their qualifications don't include this distinction of able to teach. Um, So that's a little ecclesiology. But when we see that, able to teach in chapter 3, uh, it doesn't come out of nowhere because we see also uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3 go together, right? There, these, these letters weren't written with these chapter divisions trying to separate ideas at all. They're connecting ideas. And so in chapter 2, uh, whenever you're reading in chapter 2, uh, Paul says that in verse 11 uh, in chapter 2, let a woman Learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And so um, Paul, in the pastoral epistle of First Timothy, is saying that women should not teach because when they teach, they exercise authority. And you can definitely uh, exercise authority as you teach. And so he doesn't, he doesn't permit this. Uh, and that is one of the key distinctions in chapter 3 of a qualification is that elders should be able to teach. And so from that, we can see, okay, um, women should not pastor in in that they should not uh, serve in the pastoral function role of teaching. Now, some would say that's just then. That's just first century. Paul is telling Timothy that in the church of Ephesus, that's something that should be happening. Um, But Paul does something right after that. He creates an argument in verse 13 where he says, for. So for, the gar there in the Greek is saying, I'm creating an argument. Right. 
And so he's saying, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and she became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, he's creating an argument, and what he's doing is pointing back from the first century all the way to the beginning with Adam and Eve. And he's saying, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So uh, the key thing that we should see there is he's saying, this truth that I'm telling you in that women should not teach or exercise authority over men is not just true in the first century. The exercising of authority, this role distinction where men are given headship or uh, should not have authority exercised over them is not just true in the first century. It was true in Adam and Eve's time. And so, therefore, we can read this and say, oh, okay, well, this is a truth that's not just true in one time period, but lifts itself up out of a time period. Therefore, it's true in all time periods. It was true in creation. It's true in the first century. Therefore, it's true today, and it's true for all time periods. Kind of going back to that narrative that we talked about at the beginning, Mm -hmm. creation, fall, and redemption, it's true in creation. It's true after the fall. Mm-hmm. And it's true after Jesus was crucified and resurrected and established his church. Nothing right. nothing changed in those those Rolls. times. This still applies. Right. And Paul's making that appeal. So it's a you could call it it's a timeless appeal. So the, the cultural argument doesn't well, work there. First century, right. You're, you're not being biblically. Or Paul um, would have made a first century argument. Right. There. He doesn't make a he doesn't say for and then say something specific about Ephesus. Right. He says for Adam was formed first and Eve. So he's right. making a timeless appeal in that this truth is true always. So, therefore, um, women should not be elders in the church. Um, they should not teach or exercise authority over men in the church. Right. Now, uh, what if a woman's gifted to teach? Well, that's a good question because it's not saying in this text women aren't gifted to teach. It just says women should not teach or exercise authority over men. Of course women are gifted to teach. There's plenty of women that are far gifted than us to teach, right? Um, and so it's not saying that women should not teach um, and, and and any occasion is saying women should not teach or sex exercise authority over men. Specifically, I would even say that that means in preaching and teaching on Sunday mornings, right? Um, and I would go further in my own conscience to say um, any role where women are shepherding, eldering, um, then they should not do that in my own conscience. Right, I can right. say for sure biblically that women should not be elders. And I can even say the when they're in the roles of eldering, uh, at remedy, then that would go against what would be my conscience. Right, and that's that's People, more into the particulars. Like that's when we talk about the complementarian scale. That's what mm-hmm. we're talking about. There's some of those details, right. and I understand that there's people in different places than I am on that. And, right, and I can't say they're unbiblical because I can say for sure the Bible says women can't be elders. Right, and right. then past that, you have to figure out what your conscience is. But if women do have the gift of teaching, well, what would be a good place to go? Well, I would think a pastoral epistle, right? right? Right. Because if Paul's going to talk to pastors and think about how uh, ecclesiology should look, well, I would go to a pastoral epistle. And he does actually, in Titus chapter 2, spe- give specific um, teaching on how women can use their gift of teaching. Right. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Older women likewise would be reverent behavior, not slenders or slave to much wine. They are 
to teach what is good. And so train young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so, I mean, there's a lot, of, lot there, but, and I don't have time to unpack it all in this, but what we can see is Paul does say, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, therefore Jesus is speaking, that women should teach in the church. And specifically, what we see is that older women should teach younger women. Content you can, you can get out of, the, out of the verses. But what we can see for sure is they should teach. And in, where, where they should teach, older women should teach younger women. Um, the, the, the out of, the out of, taken out of context verse in the in book of Acts where you've got the couple pulling aside the evangelist and teaching him a little bit better in the gospel, um, Aquila and Priscilla right. pulling him aside and teaching him. Um, that's Apollos. Pastoral epistle. That's a narrative. That's descriptive, not prescriptive. We have no, no given uh, details of the conversation. We have no idea if Priscilla or Aquila did the teaching. Right. We have no idea what they said. We have no idea how long it lasted, whether it was a one-time thing. There, there's so many things we don't know. Well, yeah, and it, and it, it it's, also, not, it's not a, a teaching role like we're seeing here right. in Pastoral Epistle. It's, not a, it's, it's just a side conversation yeah. over they're one not, thing. They're not gathered together as the local church. The whole church right. isn't gathered together right. and being taught. It's just a couple talking to one person. And we don't know which one did the teaching. Right. We, that, you can't build an entire teaching ministry for women off of that verse, that would be really poor hermeneutics. Right. Really right. poor. I guess the only thing I would add to the uh, just kind of we're talking about the distinctive of only men can be elders, and we went to First Timothy, the pastoral epistles, which I agree because what, what's Paul doing there is he's, he's essentially looking back on the churches he planted, and he's sending Timothy and he's sending Titus to go establish leadership in those churches. So mm-hmm. why would we not turn there? Um, specifically for this, because that's the context. But in the, in the you know First Timothy, there's the qualification of being a, a one woman man, right? A Correct. One you know a man with one wife, uh, and you know that's in the eldership qualifications. But there's also something when you go down in the same chapter, chapter three, First Timothy, where we go to the deacons, and it says in verse eleven, this is the ESV, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderous but sober-minded, faithful in all things. But the importance of that phrase is, is, well, read this way, it could be talking about deacons' wives, Mm -hmm. which some people interpret that way. But in the Greek, it literally just says, it doesn't say there, it just says Mm -hmm. wives, which is also women. Right. There's only one word for wives or women. Right. And so it literally reads, women likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Correct. Which seems to indicate that women can be deacons. Sure. And sure. if that's true, if that's the reasoning for why... There's definitely an argument right. to be made there. And if that's why we're going to argue women can be deacons... Why would Paul not put why, a section for exactly. elders? Why would he not put it... He would. He would. He would because <laughs> right. elders and deacons, if we're looking at the two offices, he's certainly going to give more care in the qualifications for elders. Right. If he's going to give... He's going to give care for both, right? But he's certainly going to give very specific care in the qualifications. And so if women could be elders, he would certainly include that. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so that that's important, again, to to read where the Bible is clear. And the, the things that are unclear need to be 
defined by the things that are very clear. Right. Right. Uh, you don't go to an unclear passage and build a whole theology off right. of it. You don't go to the third heaven yeah, in Second right. Corinthians and build a theology right. off that because it's an hypoxlegomenon. Uh, like it's a one-time occurrence. I don't speak French. I think that's not French. Yeah, it's probably Latin. Hypoxlegomenon just means when a word in Greek is only used once in the Bible. Fud, the, re- uh, the, the listeners are going to need you to spell that for them. H. No, I'm not. <laughs> uh, all right. So kind of the second main uh, spot. So that's the church, right? Elders. Uh, only men can be elders. First uh, Timothy 2 and 3. And then Titus. We can throw Titus in there. Uh, and we could go other places as well. But that's the most direct spot in the Bible that teaches toward those. It's the clearest teaching. Yeah, it's the clearest teaching. You should go there. So when we go, the next spot would be the home or the mm-hmm. family. Is there is there a distinction of roles between sex, gender, um, in the home? And so I'm going to read Ephesians 5. because Biologically, it, you could say, obviously. Right. Biologically, obviously. But now what we're talking about is like spiritually. Sure. Like in leadership. Sure. Uh, so let's go to Ephesians 5. Um, you should probably go to the clearest place where it's written. Right, clearest place where it's written, which would probably be the the household. Ephesians codes, five, Colossians, Colossians three, First right. Peter three. Right. So Ephesians five is one of those places with the household code, and it it also sets up what marriage is for, which we already alluded to. Mm-hmm. Um, it says this in verse twenty two, and we'll go back to twenty one too in a second. But it says wives or women submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So again, it's giving a distinction here in roles. The the wife is to submit to her husband as to the Lord. Right. And it's given the reason for it. One of the reasons it's not because her husband's better than her. It's because this is supposed to be a picture of the church's submission to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Right. And just so we're sure that that's not just Ephesians 5, Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. First Peter 3.1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Hmm. So in every place that you see this, the first sentence of both Peter and Paul is wives submit or be subject to your husbands. Right. And so then he goes on in 25 to, to move on to, well, what's the husband's role? Husbands love your wives. And there's probably no, one of the most challenging places, like challenging demands made of men in all of scripture here, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Good luck with that. Yeah. And gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with his word with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body and then he quotes Genesis, again, saying that stuff hasn't changed since creation. This is not a, a time-oriented argument. It's not a cultural argument. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
And what's Genesis all about? It's about Jesus. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And just so it's clear in Colossians 3, yeah. husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So it, it's, it's really interesting, right? The, as soon as they fell in, 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 in Genesis 3, there's these two things that are going to happen. And Paul, the two things that he tells us to do, right? Wives submit, addresses that thing mm-hmm. that w- women are going to do. Men, love your wives, addresses that thing that men are going to be struggling with. Right. So the two things that we're told where wives are supposed to submit and husbands are supposed to love are the exact two things that come from Genesis chapter 3. Right. The curse. After, after the curses. Right. 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 And Paul addresses them head on mm-hmm. and says, this is what you're supposed to do. Right. Love and, uh, your wives. You know. Wives submit to your husbands. One, you know, kind of comment here, too, for uh, why... Why complementarianism is the way to read this? Well, because he just, like, he literally just spells out two different roles mm-hmm. and applies it to two different genders or sexes. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a, another thing here is, is like, in an egalitarian marriage where the roles are interchangeable, <clears throat> or there's no roles, right? I mean, because you might not take one of those roles. You might just say we're all equal in every way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. What does that, what picture of the gospel does that present us with? Like, Paul is making this clear that our union with one another as a husband and wife is actually supposed to be talking about this mystery, which is profound, which is talking about the church's union with Jesus Christ. Right. And there's no doubt, no one that I've heard would argue that you can interchange the roles of Jesus in the church in terms of lordship and headship and authority. But that's certainly the implication. Right, right. Um, if the wife takes her cues from the church and the husband takes his cues from the from Christ, that's good. But it's never the reverse right. in that the, that Christ must submit or be equal with the church. Well, I think we would all say that's not right. Right. That's not right. 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 Um, but he does share his identity with us. He shares his status with us. Mm-hmm. He doesn't share his role with us. <laughs> he does, he, we don't become saviors or we don't go on the cross and become uh, substitutionary atonements. For no, other don't. people's sins. No, we don't. Um, all right. Uh, I just want to throw this out. Um, another kind of egalitarian uh, way of getting around Ephesians 5 that I've heard mm-hmm. is they go to verse, verse 21, 21, right? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then they, you know, wives submit to your own husbands. And they really emphasize in verse 21, right there, it's saying submit to one another, mm-hmm. meaning husbands submit to your wives, wives submit to your husbands. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think about that? Um, I don't think that it's calling for um, men to submit to their wives in the same way that wives submit to their husbands because, as we've said, um, Christ does not submit to the church in the same way that the church submits to Christ. Does Christ submit to the church? How does he do that? And that's the way that the husband should do it. Um, but I don't think that it means that he's not the head of the family anymore. Right. So Christ loves the church, and he's willing to give up himself for the church and die for her. And that's how he's supposed to love her. And so that's that's the way I would view a husband is supposed to do that. Um, and 
you know, verse verse 18 is the verse that brings us into verse 21, you know, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right. And so being filled with the Holy Spirit um, helps us understand the rest of these things. How can you be the kind of husband you're supposed to be? How can you be the kind of wife you're supposed to be? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then that helps you understand uh, what it is that God's calling you. Yeah, and the the context there, right, is being filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing others in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with mm-hmm. your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can submit to one another in all those things and giving thanks and singing songs of praise and being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's talking about this kind of church brothers and sisters loving one another. And then when he actually goes into... and yeah, verse 21, submission isn't, it's not marriage yet. Right, right. 22 is where he gets yeah. to marriage. Exactly. 21 yeah. is just talking about brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Right, and so this is kind of a mutual submission uh, between brothers and sisters, and then it goes into all these different roles. Right. Right, we got husbands, wives. We talked about husbands, wives, but then it also goes into like children. children um, parents. Yeah. Um, so I have one kind of closing thought. Uh, this is just about back to uh, the church. This is from uh, Alexander Strott, Biblical Eldership. Uh, he, he says that, uh, you know, it, it could be thought that if people or if women are gifted at preaching and teaching and you don't let them uh, be elders and preach and teach, that it's not fair and it's not right. And to withhold that, that, uh, that gift that they have to, to the whole church is unjust. This is what he says. To restrict women from church eldership would be unjust and discriminatory if it were done arbitrarily by males for their own selfish ends. But if such restriction was part of the creator's wise plan, then it's not discrimination. If this is God's uh, plan, it's not discrimination. And he says, then therefore it is just and good for the welfare of the family the local church and the whole human race, meaning we don't we we're not complementarians and we're like, well, I mean we're complementarians, but if I was in charge, I'd do it another way. Right, we're right. complementarians. Kind of like apologetical, right? Apologetic. And not not only are we complementarians, we say yes, and it's right and it's good, and anything other than that is not good. It's not good. Right. And then he says, as Christians, we would not accuse Jesus Christ of discrimination. He alone is perfect. We are imperfect. Yet, Jesus Christ appointed only males to the foundational office of the church, the apostolate. Although the feminist spirit of the age recoils at such a thought, Jesus is founder and Lord of the church, and we must follow his example and his teaching. Yep. So what he says is good, and not following that, it's not just ho-hum, and you know, if they want to do it that way, then they can, but I'm not comfortable with it. If it's not that... It's wrong, yep. and it's not good. And at, at the end of the day, um, the Bible should guide us in how we worship God. Uh, scripture, and particularly the teachings of Jesus, uh, are binding on our consciences. And so what, whatever Scripture clearly teaches, uh, we are obligated to not only believe but obey. Right. Um, and know that it's good. Right. And so the argument isn't saying, hey, here's two views— Let's just pick one. The argument here is, what does the Bible teach? Mm-hmm. How does the Bible? How should the Bible be understood? Um, and the elders at Remedy have come to the conclusion that it should be. It's best understood um, 
with the title complementarianism. So again, we'll probably do in the future something that's a little more particular. Maybe it attacks like more specific arguments on both sides, and right. we'll get into the scales. Complementarianism part two sometime. Yeah, um, but this is just an overarching kind of bare bones of what complementarianism is, and we thought it would be helpful too because it is what we teach from as the elders at Remedy. It's also something that we mention in our um, church member covenant as one of the distinctives at Remedy Church. Yep. All right, maybe next time we might have been able to get two podcasts done today if uh, we didn't uh, hit that update button. Right. Well, that's my fault. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe next time. All right. Well, we will see you all next time. Uh, Have a good week being in the church. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) 